You can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 this morning. Hebrews 8, 1 through 6. In high school, I worked at the movie theater. And there was one weekend that my mom saved the movie theater. My favorite job at the movie theater was projectionist. So when I worked there, movies were still projected through film strip that would come on these big reels. You could fit about 20 minutes of movie on one one reel. And so a new movie would, you know, come out on Friday. It would usually show up on a Wednesday. And so you'd have about a day and a half to put these reels together. Uh, They'd come in these big, excuse me, sorry. They'd come in these big canisters. You could fit about three to four reels in a canister. So typical movie would be about five to six reels. And then you'd, you'd have to splice them together. And then all the film would go on this big platter that would set next to the, next to the projector. The important thing was that they had to be spliced together in the right order. Uh, and in the right way, otherwise you could end up with part of the movie upside down, or you could have, you know, the end of the movie in the middle, or, you know, something bizarre, bizarre like that. But a memory that I'll never forget was the weekend that the second Lord of the Rings movie came out, The Two Towers. Came out in December, it was just about almost 19 years ago, and I remember the the canisters with the, the movie arrived, um... Uh, on a day, kind of like the days we've been having here recently, cold, really windy, uh, with some freezing rain. And there was a lot of anticipation for this second Lord of the Rings movie. We were going to uh, project it. We had two copies of it to project on two different screens. And it, this was a long movie. So an average movie maybe had five to six reels, but uh, The Two Towers was nine reels Long, So it came in three canisters, and so we had two copies, which means six canisters total, and these big heavy things that you'd have to carry around. Uh, but the problem is, the, the canisters didn't show up Wednesday, they showed up Thursday. And uh, <clears throat> brought them in, finished some things up, and then we were looking at them more closely and realized uh, we did not have quite what we needed. We had three canisters uh, with reels one through three, and we had three canisters with reels seven through nine, but we had no canisters with reels four through six. So we were missing the middle chunk of this movie, and the movie comes out tomorrow. And we're realizing this, you know, in the in the evening. So sometime after supper time, after like calling around, calling the freight company, and uh, uh, we 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 come to find out that our Missing canisters have been delivered to the movie theater in Marshall, Minnesota, a hundred miles away. So we need to figure out how to get these somehow. The manager of the of the theater, I'm not sure what was happening. If it was a family crisis or something, he was not on the scene, and uh, uh, no one no one's available to try to get hold of these. But I was dedicated to my job at the theater, which is how I ended up uh, trying to explain to my parents 
that night around 8 o'clock on a school night why I needed to drive to Marshall, Minnesota and back uh, on highways with freezing rain. And that's the story of how my mom saved the Century 7 movie theater in Hutchinson, Minnesota, because there is no way that she let me drive to Marshall, Minnesota. I rode along. And we got back shortly after midnight, and my mom was not happy about the whole thing. And she wondered why the success of the Century 7 Theater rose and fell based on the competency and commitment of 10th graders. But it's interesting to think, what would it have been like to just put that movie together? You would have had about two hours of movie. You would have had the beginning. You would have had the end. You would have just been missing this chunk in the middle. Uh, it, it would, In one sense, it would still make sense, but it would have been disorienting to watch it, and you would have been missing crucial points in the middle. And similarly, I think we miss important points and are disoriented in our Christian lives when we miss big chunks in the way that we should think about God. And the author of Hebrews is trying to help us with that, specifically how we think about Christ this morning. Let's look at Hebrews 8, 1 through 6. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would grant us a picture of Christ, an understanding and knowledge of Christ this morning that would allow us to know him more and trust him more and love him more and come to you through him more. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are continuing to look at Jesus' office as priest in the book of Hebrews. As, as you read through the book of Hebrews, Jesus' priesthood is, is, a, is a major theme in this book. So far, the priesthood has come up in every single chapter of, of the book of Hebrews. And we're beginning chapter 8 here. And, and the author, he, he's going to continue to bring up uh, Jesus as priest throughout 
throughout the book. But before moving on to uh, the implications and topics in connection with Christ as priest, he lingers here for a little bit in chapter 8. He spent all of chapter 7 discussing Jesus as priest. And he lingers here for a little bit. He wants us to see a little bit more. And although the original recipients was, was a Jewish audience, there, there is important things for us to consider here this morning. We often fail to appreciate the significance and the benefits of Christ's role as our priest. Jesus fulfills the three most important offices of the Old Testament. The office of prophet, priest, and king. Jesus fulfills all those, but when we fail to recognize one of them, are we, we, we end up in dis, uh, we end up off balance, off kilter. When we fail to recognize Jesus as king, we often live worldly lives. When you, when you accept Jesus as savior, but then you don't accept him as your Lord or your king, it's often because you want to continue as your own sovereign ruler. But a Christianity without obedience is not Christianity. Or when, you, when we fail to recognize Jesus as prophet, we, we often believe worldly teaching rather than biblical teaching. When Jesus no longer serves as the primary revelation of, of God to us, he tends to be acknowledged as, as, a, as a good moral teacher. But a Christianity without revelation from God is not Christianity. But what happens when we fail to recognize Jesus as priest? Hopefully this will become more clear this morning, but I'm, I'm afraid it leaves us with a heartless and hopeless Christianity. And a Christianity without hope is not Christianity. So as our prophet, Christ reveals God to us. As our king, Christ rules over us. But as our priest, Christ ministers to us. And if we're going to receive the blessing of the ministry of Christ, we need to see what the author of Hebrews presents here. Christ as a high priest with a heavenly residence. Secondly, Christ as high priest with a heavenly offering. And finally, a high priest with a heavenly ministry. So let's look first here this morning at his office, at his heavenly residence. As we look at verse 1, the author tells us very clearly what he wants us to hear. We don't have to spend much time asking ourselves and wonder what his point is, right? Hebrews 8.1. Now the point and what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. All that was said to describe Jesus' priest in chapter 7, this priest, that priest as he described him there in all of his greatness, we, we are not waiting for him uh, we, we are not remembering what he once was. We are not in search of him, our long-lost priest. Today, we have him. We have access to him right now. He is ours, provided we seek him on the terms that he has given. So where, where is he? Look at verse 1 again. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So we're going to come back to that part of the description at the end of verse 1. Let's concentrate on, on where is he, he's described to be here in verse 2. In the holy places, in the true tent. Now, although the, 
the author spent uh, all of chapter 7 distinguishing Jesus' priesthood from the, from the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. The language here places Jesus in a place that looks, resembles uh, something very, very similar to where we would expect to find a Levitical priest in the holy places, in the tent. Well, what, what is the tent? Well, when God rescues his people from Egypt, he brings them to Mount Sinai, and he gives them the law at Mount Sinai, which we can start reading about in Exodus 19. This law that God gives Moses is, 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 is instructions for how the people are going to relate to God, and it's instructions for how the people are going to relate to one another as God's people. But in terms of how they're going to relate to God, God instructs them how he is going to be worshipped. It instructs them that he is going to be worshipped through the means of a tent. He tells them to build a tent. And this tent is for worship. This tent is a, is a, is a distinguished place where God's manifest presence is going to dwell. Now keep in mind, God does not have a body. God doesn't have a body. So the purpose of the tabernacle is to help his people relate to him. It's, it's to assure them that he is real and that he is, he is near. The tabernacle is used by God to be a place where his people can recognize his holy presence. In one sense, God is incorporeal. He does not have a body. He, uh, he, he is spirit, which, which, which is how he is able to be omnipresent, how he's allowed to be, how it's possible for him to be in all places at all times. But in another sense, he is in the tabernacle. He is manifesting his presence there. And the greatest thing God can give you is himself. And so to be in the presence of God is to be blessed in an ultimate sense. That's what he is giving the Israelites. If you think back to Adam and Eve, they sin. And what happens? They're cast out of the garden. They're cast out of God's presence. So in one sense, the tabernacle is an invitation back. However, the problem of Adam and Eve's sin has not changed. It's been passed down to subsequent generations. So even though you're going to have a tabernacle, you still have the sin problem, which is why God appoints priests. Normal, everyday people are not going to be allowed in God's presence. Appointed representatives are going to be allowed in God's presence. And even those appointed representatives, their access is, is limited. In, in God's directions for the design of the tabernacle, he instructs Moses that, 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 that this, this tent is supposed to have two rooms separated by a veil. So in Exodus 34, 33, we read, And you shall hang the veil from the clasps, and the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. And in the holy place, priests and only priests are, are, are permitted, they're authorized to enter daily. But in the most holy place, the high priest and only the high priest is authorized to enter yearly. And so this is a blueprint that God gives Moses for how his people are to relate to him, for how they're to draw near to him. They're, they are going to camp near this tent. And you might think, well, Man, that's not very nice. They don't get to go in. But this is a much more privileged place than all the other peoples of the world. Outside the camp. In the place of darkness and, and uncleanness. These people get to camp close to it's surrounding the structure where God himself is present. 
So the recipients of the, of the book of Hebrews, they would have been very, very familiar 1,400 years later with, with the tabernacle tent and its holy places. And Jesus, similar to these Old Testament priests, looking in at verse 2, he is a minister in the holy places, in the tent. But the difference comes with the qualifiers here. Jesus ministers in the true tent. Jesus ministers in the, in the tent set up by the Lord, not man, it says very clearly. And so these qualifiers are important. We're not talking about the tabernacle of the Old Testament here in Hebrews 8, the tabernacle that was set up by man. We even know the names of the, uh, of the men who are primarily responsible for building the tabernacle. In Exodus 35, Bezalel and Aholiab were the two guys who, who built this thing with, uh, with the help of, of some others. We're not talking about the one that they set up. The tabernacle in Exodus, it turns out, was only a copy and a shadow of the true tabernacle, to use the language of verse 5. And, and Scripture consistently distinguishes heaven from earth, right? Heaven is considered the dwelling place of God. Earth is considered the dwelling place of, of human beings. So we read like in Psalm 115, verse 16, the heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. Earth is our dwelling place. And the Old Testament tabernacle was only ever a copy, only ever a shadow of the true dwelling place of God in the heavens. So while the residents of Jesus as, as priest resembles the residence of the Levitical priesthood. It is far more significant. The Levitical priests, they, they, were, they ministered in a place of temporary holiness. Jesus ministers in the holy place in heaven. They ministered in the tent or the tabernacle. Jesus ministers in the true tent, the true tabernacle. They are ministered in the tent set up by men. Jesus ministers in the tent set up by the Lord himself. And while the Old Testament priests ministered to the people from their access to God's manifest presence, Jesus ministers to people by virtue of his access to God's immediate presence. A place in the words of 1 Timothy 6:16, a place of unapproachable light. And one thing to keep in mind about his residence, you might think, well, this isn't that big a deal. This is the Son of God. He, I mean, this is God. He's supposed to dwell in heaven, right? What's, you know, what's the big surprise with God dwelling in heaven? Well, we have to remember who Jesus is. Who Jesus is makes this something totally normal to something completely astounding. Jesus is one person with two natures. So Christians have confessed Jesus to be from Scripture for 2,000 years. He is one person with two natures. Jesus is not two people. He is not God and man. Jesus is also not, he, he's not two parts. He's not part God and part man. Jesus is also not God mutated. He is not God transformed into man. Jesus also is not God combined with man. He is not God blended with man. Jesus is one single person with two distinct natures. He has a divine nature by virtue of his divinity. 
he, is, he has a divine nature because he's God. We read in, in Hebrews 1, at the very beginning of the book of Hebrews, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Christians have summarized what the Bible teaches about Jesus' divinity by saying that he is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. He is the exact same substance as God the Father. And he does not lose his divine nature when he takes on human flesh. Rather, he takes on a human nature. He has a human nature by virtue of his humanity. And while Hebrews 1 discusses and, 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 and gives us Jesus' divinity, Hebrews 2 gives us Jesus' full humanity. We read in, G, in, in Hebrews 2, 14, for example, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Flesh and blood. And then you jump down to verse 17 in Hebrews 2. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So he was fully human. And so for centuries, Christians have recognized Jesus as one person with two natures, fully God and fully man. So what's the, what's the point of all this? Christians battled over these careful definitions for centuries. What, what's the point? Well, here's one reason why it matters. If we look at Hebrews 2.17 again, which says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that... How does that verse end? He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. The implication here is he had to be human to be a priest for us. The one who ministers then in the holy places, back in Hebrews 8, 2 now, the one who ministers in the holy places, not the shadow and copy of the holy places, but the holy places, the one who ministers in the true tabernacle in the immediate presence of God is a man, is a human being. He's one of us. He's like us. And he has taken up residence in heaven as our representative to minister to us from that place. And he is qualified to be there because he is a priest who has made a heavenly offering. He is a human priest who has made a heavenly offering. So looking second, a high priest with a heavenly offering. If you look at verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Broadly speaking, there, there are two kinds of sacrifices or offerings that we find in the Old Testament. Uh, you, you can distinguish them further, but if you want to just break them into two categories, you have offerings of thanksgiving, and then you have offerings of atonement. Offerings of thanksgiving, these are free will offerings, vow offerings, peace offerings. They were, they were offered to express gratitude for God for what he had done, for what he had promised, or what he had provided. Atonement offerings, this is usually what we think of probably when you think of sacrifices. These were offerings that were made so that people could be right with God. These were offerings that were made because, because of sin. And the priest's job was 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 to specialize in these offerings. They offered both of these kinds of offerings. And if you've read through the first seven chapters of Leviticus, uh, which is always uh, an interesting 
read, you, you read all about the, the intricate details of these, these various different kinds of offerings. And then if you get to Leviticus 22, it details the types of animals that were acceptable for those sacrifices. So it had to be a perfect animal, right? It couldn't be, it couldn't be an animal that was blind or disabled or mutilated. It couldn't have a discharge or an itch or a scab. Uh, it, it couldn't have one of its legs too long or too short. And the Israelite priests were to specialize in what types of gifts and sacrifices were acceptable and unacceptable before God as they mediated and ministered to the people as they, as they drew, new, drew near to God. But in verses 4 and 5, we see that the priests on earth are distinguished from the priest in heaven. Verse 4, now if he were on earth, it's talking about Jesus here, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are, pre, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now, there's a number of things to notice here. First is maybe a question that, that comes to mind. If Christ were not on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all. Why wouldn't he be a priest at all? If Christ is on earth, why wouldn't he be? Hold on, hold on to that question. That's an important question that we're going to come back to. Uh, first, let's look at the characteristics of, of this earthly priesthood. First of all, its residence is on earth. That's clear, right? It's, it's regulated by the Old Testament law, right? It says in verse 4, they offer gifts according to the law. Its significance, it has significance, but its significance would be described as uh, the kind of significance of a copy or the kind of significance of, uh, of a shadow, Right, the Old Testament tabernacle, the place that's described as the holy place and the holy of holies is described here as a copy and shadow of heavenly things. The builder of this place is man, right? Man in general, Bezalel and Aholiab in particular, right, from Exodus 35. And its mediator is Moses. Its mediator is Moses is the one who receives these instructions from God when he's on the mountain. So in, in verse 5 here, uh, the author of Hebrews quotes Exodus 25, verse 40, uh, which is when Moses is up on the mountain with God and God is giving him these instructions. And God says to him, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So we have, we have here on earth, we have, according to the law, a copy and shadow of the, of the throne room of God, which is made by human hands and mediated by Moses. And, and, and as, uh, as one theologian writes, even in this copy and shadow of God's dwelling place, there's a sense in which the high priest goes up to meet with God. So there's a sense in which if you, you picture this, this tabernacle, it, it's sitting there on the ground, but, but when, the, when the high priest goes into that holy of holies once a year, it's as if he's going up to heaven to meet with God. When they actually would build the temple 400 years later, it was actually up on a mountain. So the high priest would actually ascend up to God. So there's an important sequence here on the day of atonement. The sequence is sacrifice, ascent, and then intercession, and then blessing. So on the day of atonement, uh, you're probably familiar with that. You've, you've maybe heard about that in, in Leviticus 16. That's the day they'd select two goats. They'd sacrifice one. They'd send the other out into the wilderness. Uh, this is the one day a year that the priest is allowed to go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood before the Lord. 
And, and, and the sequence here, though, of this day is, is significant. You would start with sacrifice. The priest would sacrifice the goat. And then the second step was he would ascend up to God. He would go into the Holy of Holies to meet with God. And he would sprinkle the blood before the Lord, which, which was his way of interceding for the people. It was demonstrating that something had died. Blood was shed for the sins of the people. And then as a result, sacrifice, ascent, intercession. And then as a result, the fourth step was then blessing for the people. They'd be blessed with forgiveness. They'd be blessed with peace with God. But the author of Hebrews is telling us that this is all happening in the realm of copy and shadow. Copy and shadow. Now in verse 3, it tells us that Jesus also needed something to offer. And then verses 4 and 5 tell us that Jesus is not needed on earth, because we have priests on earth who offer sacrifices according to the law. And then verse 6 ties all this together. So as we shift our focus, third and finally here, to the high priest with a heavenly ministry. A high priest with a heavenly ministry. Verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So once and again, we can recognize all these characteristics here, right? The residence now is not earth, but it's heaven, right? The, the, the regulations here are not the Old Testament law, but it's a better covenant, right? Which, which we'll look at more closely in the second half of chapter 8. Its significance is, is not that it's in the realm of copies and shadows. Its significance is that it is in the true and holy. This is the holy place where God dwells. The builder of this place is not man, but the Lord himself. And the mediator is not Moses, but the mediator is Jesus Christ, the God-man. One person with two natures, fully God and fully man. And once again, Jesus follows a similar priestly sequence, but it, but it is ramped up here. Jesus offered a sacrifice, but he did not offer a perfect animal. He offered himself. He offered his own life and his own blood. And so his sacrifice was not a symbol or a shadow of forgiveness like we get in the Old Testament. His sacrifice actually satisfies God's righteous judgment for sin. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He died on the cross and he rose from the dead. And if he stops there, we don't have a high priest. If he stops, and so praise God, he died for our sins. Praise God, he rose from the dead. But if he stops there, we do not have, an inter, we do not have a high priest to intercede for us. So what comes next in the sequence? Sacrifice and then ascension. He ascends into heaven. He ascends up the mountain of God. He ascends into the holy of holies. And he is able to do so because he is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, as we read in Psalm 24. And the gates open when he gets there. The ancient doors lift up because the king of glory has come 
And the king of glory is a priest king. He, he, and he, he intercedes. So sacrifice, assent, and then intercession. He walks into the Holy of Holies, into the immediate presence of God. Remember, this is a man. This is someone like you and me with flesh and blood. But he doesn't bring evidence of a sacrifice goat. He does not walk into the Holy of Holies with goat blood on his hands. He comes and presents his hands with nail holes in them. These are the hands of the lamb who has slain for sinners. And then on the basis of his own personal sacrifice, once for all, he intercedes for us. He prays for us. He mediates for us, which leads us to the final stage in the sequence. His people are blessed. As a result of his sacrifice and ascension and intercession, his people are finally blessed. This is the answer to the question from verse 4. Right? If Christ were on earth, why would he, why would he not be a priest at all? Well, one explanation is we already have priests who have operated here according to the Levitical system. But the other, the other explanation for why he is not a priest at all if he's on earth is because unless he ascends into heaven and presents his sacrifice before the Father to intercede for us, he has not fulfilled the role as priest. A resurrected Savior as glorious as a resurrected Savior is. This is not to downplay the resurrected Savior, but the resurrected Savior merely cannot be our high priest. It is only our ascended Savior who can minister to us. And he is your priest if you are in Christ. This man is your minister if you are in Christ. For all those who have turned away from sin and followed him, everything you do is seen through his perfect righteousness. Everything you do is seen through his a fully atoning sacrifice. And we know it's fully atoning, right? This is one of the reasons why his ministry is described here in verse 6 as much more excellent than the old. How do we know it's fully atoning? Back up in verse 1. He is seated. He is seated. He is seated there in heaven. There's no need to come back out. There's no need to go through this whole program again next year. There's no need for more sacrifice and blood. He is sitting down there. It is finished. We we have a fulfillment here of Psalm 110, which which was referenced in chapter 7, that the Lord says to my Lord, sit. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the king prophesied in Psalm 110. This is the Melchizedekian priest prophesied in Psalm 110. And he is seated. And his his seat is described here at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Once again, we have this parallel going back to Hebrews 1, to the opening opening part of, of Hebrews In Hebrews 1.3, we read, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then we come here to chapter 8 and verse 1, 
where he says, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And in verse 6 we see, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent. He has a name that is more excellent than angels, and he has a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. The author goes on to elaborate on the details of those better promises and that that covenant in the rest of chapter 8. But are you seeing the significance of Jesus' priestly ministry? Are you seeing the, the necessity of ascending into heaven, supposedly away from us, leaving us, but of course not leaving us because he is with us by means of the Spirit? Are you seeing the significance of his priestly ministry? He is not just a superior priest on his own. He is a superior priest for you. He is a priest for every sinner that comes to him by faith. The types of people who don't come to him are the people who do not see themselves as sinner. If you do not see your sin as significant, you will not care about a high priest. You'll have no interest in a high priest to minister to you if you don't see yourself in need of salvation, if you don't see yourself deserving God's judgment. But there's another kind of person who, who does not come to Jesus as high priest, and that's someone who doesn't know him as high priest. It's a perilous place to be in, to live the Christian life and not recognize Jesus' office. Here, if you sin and you do not have a high priest, one of two things play out. Either, on the one hand, you become hardened to sin. You sin without a high priest, you downplay your sin. You've got to do something with it. So you just act as if it's not really that big a deal. You rationalize it. You excuse it. You just accept it and you move on. But the problem is doing that makes it easier to sin again and again and again. And this is the author of Hebrews actually warns about this in chapter 3, right? The, the, the danger of being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. One of the consequences of not knowing Christ as priest is that you will be comfortable with accommodating the very thing that separates you from God. If you sin without a high priest, you may become hardened to sin. But if you don't become hardened by sin, you will despair. You'll become dominated by your sin. You will go over it again and again in your mind. You will recognize that you deserve judgment and it will be crushing on you. And maybe you struggle with that. Maybe it seems sometimes hopeless, like you will never overcome sin. Maybe you end up do you end up in dark places where you're, it seems like the message is once a sinner, always a sinner. There is no hope for getting relief from my guilt. The problem with that is there, there is no way out of that hole because in, in, in many ways you're believing things that are actually true. Sin is actually devastating. It is condemning. It does leave you with nothing. And you either completely despair or you end up going back to the First option, which is just being hardened by sin to, to deal with it. But what happens when we bring our sin to the high priest? What happens when you sin with a high priest? Well, your sin is not downplayed. You, you actually have to deal with 
your sin. You actually have to acknowledge it. You have to look it in the face. You have to recognize it for what it is. It is transgression. It separates us from God. And yet when we bring our sin to Christ the high priest, he assures us of pardon. And not only that, if that weren't enough, he also promises help for the future. The sooner we learn to come to him, the less sin will have dominion over us. So we read in Hebrews 4, 15, which we've already seen, but which, which has even more clarity to it now in light of chapter 8. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you know what it is to draw near to the throne of grace? Do you know what it is to receive mercy and help in time of need? Do you know Christ as priest? Do you recognize him as for you right now in heaven, a real human being? in the true tent, in the holy places for you. Bring your guilt before the throne of grace and receive from Christ pardon. Receive assurance of forgiveness and receive spiritual help. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow because of the ministry, because of the ministry of this heavenly High priest. The author of Hebrews doesn't want us to miss out on this huge chunk of who Jesus is. You maybe know the Christmas story. You know how he came. You know the beginning of the story. You know that he's coming again. You know the end of the story. But don't miss out on the middle of what he is, of who he is, what he is for us. Don't miss out. Don't miss the full picture. Of, of this great comfort, of this great strength we can have. Missing this is perhaps to miss out on Christ all together. This morning, I want to end with words of Romans 8. These are common, common words that you've, you've heard before, but I hope they hit you a little differently this morning. Paul is saying the exact same thing in Romans 8 that the author of Hebrews is saying. So Romans 8, beginning in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Listen to this. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. More than that, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And in light of that fact, Paul writes, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. No, no, nothing in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't miss this minister. Don't underestimate his 
ministry. Come to the throne of grace and come again and again and again to receive mercy and help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, who are we to be made such promises? Who are we to be assured of such mercy and to receive such grace? Father, let us forever know Christ as prophet and Christ as king and Christ as priest. Father, we praise you as the God of love, the Father who so loved he sent the Son, the Son who so loves that he ever lives and pleads for us at your right hand in heaven, the Spirit who so loves that he fills us with your love and assures us of your love. Father, help us to remember who we are, sinners yet justified and forgiven, if we're in Christ, and help us to remember who Christ is, sinless, yet died, risen, and ascended for us. And when we sin, Father, help us to look upward and see him there who made an end of all our sin. Before your throne, a man, a human being, who is our strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name.